turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The wisdom of God is so powerful, so great, so superior, so infinite, and so wonderful that the world, natural man, actually sees it as foolishness. And we've seen over the past two weeks that this refers specifically to the cross which at that time in Paul's day was an object of embarrassment, torture, and defeat. It was a time unlike today where the cross is worn as jewelry. It is a symbol of something special and beautiful. Back then it was horrible. And yet for the Christians of the day it was a sign of hope. It was a sign of victory. It was a sign of worship. And this wisdom of God that we have been studying in 1 Corinthians is not just a philosophical ideal. It is a practical reality. There's nothing more practical about the wisdom of God than how it affects us as individuals, as human beings. Having clearly explained the wisdom of God and why it is foolishness to man and that the wisdom of man is actually foolishness, Paul now elaborates on this in a practical way, on a practical level. In other words, he gives us two prime examples of how the wisdom of God is played out in a world filled with the men who deny it. Over the next few weeks, we'll see the wisdom of God exemplified in a practical way. First, in his calling, how he has called his people, the virtue of the call, what makes up the call, as well as how it's played out in Paul's preaching, both the content and the methodology of his sermons and gospel ministry. This morning and next week, we will focus on the foolish wisdom of God in the calling, the calling of his children, the elect. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? We'll be looking at verses 26 through 31 over the next two weeks. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast. In the Lord. Over the next two Sundays, we will be looking at four manifestations of God's wisdom in the calling. Four manifestations of God's wisdom in the calling, His calling, our calling. The first manifestation of God's wisdom in the call is the people of the calling. 
the people of the calling. And we'll be looking at the first two this morning and finish off. The people of the calling is found in, well, really the whole passage. But I find this point of our outline in verse 26. Let me read that for you once again. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So Paul begins here in this practical example of the wisdom of God by speaking to the call, the believers in Corinth. Remember, this is a specific church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. Different culture, different place. And he emphasizes to these particular believers their standing in society. Not in the church, not in God's eyes, but in their society as a whole. And it's very important that we look at the context, both within the letter of what, the context of what Paul is writing, as well as its historical context. Not only to accurately understand and interpret God's word, but also on the flip side, to avoid any misunderstanding and misinterpretation. This is a principle we are to apply in all of Scripture, not just this verse or this passage. And I want to elaborate on this a little bit. I bring this up here because this is uh, maybe not the, the number one or most common, but this is a verse that I have often heard referred to in the context of a Christian talking about the conversion of someone famous or powerful, and it is used improperly. It is not God's point. Like a, a politician or a modern-day actor or a professional athlete. Right? There's excitement because, oh, we heard that maybe this athlete is, is, is attending a Bible study. Maybe this, this, this politician is actually a Christian. And sometimes you hear other Christians say, like, well, probably not, because, you know, we Christians are not many wise, mighty, or noble. Not only is that not what Paul is saying here, how do you then explain the numerous world leaders and U.S. presidents of history that were born-again Christians? The countless celebrities and athletes, not to mention the extremely influential and powerful, successful people that you have never heard of that are born-again Christians. You see, you take this misinterpretation too far, and you have the perfect excuse to avoid evangelizing anyone that you are intimidated by. Like the boss or the celebrity you shake hands with after the game or after the show. So what is Paul talking about? Within the context, we know a few things. Back in verse 24, he writes, in 1 Corinthians 1, To those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, meaning anyone, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, if you are called by God to be His, Regardless of your social standing, Christ is the power and wisdom of God for you. In other words, you are saved. You cannot deny it. You cannot avoid it. If you are the elect, if you are the call, you are saved. And you will be saved. By the way, on a side note, if you are female here today, and the doctrine of election confuses you, you need to sign up for the next women's study in which you will be learning and unpacking the doctrine of election and the calling of God. Back to the verse in the context. We also know in a historical context that at that time Christianity 
was not the powerful and influential religion that it is today. Sure, you can look at politics, you can look at the liberalism, especially in our area, or, or, or the other religions in the world and say, well, you know, Christians are being persecuted. But you have to understand and you have to admit that over the last 2,000 years, Christianity has changed the world. Not just in changing people because they're saved, but major reformations in the world. The abolishment of slavery, a Christian idea. Prison reform in, in the developed world. Christians did that. Cleaning up and changing hospitals, orphanages. Christianity is powerful. And even in politics, even among the most liberal, they need to tip their hat and at least acknowledge the religious right, as they call them, because they vote and they're powerful. But 2,000 years ago, this was not the case. It was just a few years old by the time Paul is writing this. With just a fraction of a fraction of the followers it has had since that day. They were considered a cult. They were weak. They were scared. They were persecuted. They were not a major world religion during a time in which there were major world religions. And there are far fewer atheists than today. Most everyone followed something. Finally, in terms of the context, we know that this is scripture for all believers, but Paul is writing a specific letter to a specific church. So what's in his mind, not necessarily the Spirit's mind, in his mind he is talking about a specific group of people, though it bleeds over to all believers because it is indeed the Word of God. So, it's within that context that we need to interpret this verse and then, understanding the particular context and meaning, apply it faithfully, accurately to today. So, in considering the Corinthian believers, he says first, consider your calling. This is the effectual calling of the elect by God that results in salvation. This calling is not based on the social status of the individual or anything, any sort of external condition, but is based purely on God and His sovereign love. Right there, we are again touching on the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. Because the wisdom of man is all about externals. It's all about how handsome or how pretty you are externally. It's all about talents, abilities, social status, experience, heritage, status, resumes. How much money can he make us? How successful is he? How are your kids? Oh, he's a doctor now. He's a lawyer now. He's at such and such school. This is what the world is concerned about. And so, as we've talked about a lot over the past two weeks, this is why when man's wisdom comes up with religion, it's all about doing good works, being good enough, being successful, achieving. Whereas with Christianity, it's all about God, not about you or what you've accomplished or could accomplish. So what kind of people did God call? First, he says, not many wise according to the flesh. Now again, even when we look at these 
these descriptions that we're going to unpack, and there's a lot of them in this passage. We need to understand the meaning of that day. Unfortunately, most of these, like wise, is, is wise, but I'm, I'm saying this because sometimes we can put it into our modern context and say it refers to someone which is not what Paul intended. For example, if you're like me, you, you think not many wise, and you think, oh, it's people who hoard toilet paper because they think it's going to protect them from coronavirus. But no, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Just joke. No offense if you've done it. <laughs> if you did do that, please see me after service. <laughs> but he says, not many wise according to the flesh, or not many wise according to worldly or human standards, which is, in fact, how the ESV and NIV uh, interpret it. First notice, though, and this applies to all of these descriptions, he says, not many. He doesn't say none. And that speaks to what I said earlier. This is not a blanket statement for all believers. And this is not even a blanket statement for all the believers in Corinth, that none of them had some sort of social standing. But for the most part, they were not the worldly wise. What were the wise in those days? In those days, they would be members of the philosophical or intellectual class. Now, this might be kind of hard to grasp in our context, since we live in an area, specifically this area, and where going to college is kind of a given. Not all of us have, but it's kind of an assumed thing about people who can, especially if they're younger, who can afford to live here. You understand that that's not the case in much of the United States of America. College is seen as a waste of time and money. My wife has many relatives who are ingrained with this thinking, and especially the, the more blue-collar states. Why would I go to college when my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my father worked at the same factory that I plan to work at? And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that we need to be careful how we read into this. Today, we all interact with those with advanced degrees who are experts of their field, those we, were, we would consider intellects, not so with the Corinthian believers. They did not interact with people like that, and they were definitely, for the most part, not members of the intellectual or philosophical class, which was an actual class back then. Okay? Today, especially in our country, our, our social classes are mostly based on finances, regardless of what, what your education or your upbringing. And the American dream can pop you in or out uh, of those classes. In many countries in the world today, classes are not based on finances. They're based on things like we saw 2,000 years ago, which for them, of course, brought to them a lot of money. But it's about being intellectual class or philosophical class. Not many wise means not many were in that class. Then he goes on and says, there are not many of you who are mighty. This would refer to the influential and powerful leaders of society, the leaders of politics, industry, and the like. So these aren't just average people who go, oh, you actually do that? You would know who these people are in the Roman Empire. These, those are people who are prominent. They carry clout. In other words, before salvation, most of the Corinthians 
were not those who were considered influential in Corinthian politics and social life. Perhaps this gets home more with us. Though well-educated in our own right, we are not the kind of people who go to our jobs and everyone in the world in that field hangs on our word, every word, because we are moving our industries or our fields. Right? There are many of you with great jobs, great educations. You are chemists. You are engineers. But you're not changing the field of engineering in its entirety by what you do. You are not writing new laws. Right? There are many lawyers in our church, but there aren't any Supreme Court justices. You see what I mean? And this is what Paul's talking about. There were not people in the church that would be like this. Now, in this day and age, we see these people on TV. The world is bigger. The population is greater. But back then, you would see these type of people going by in their chariots or walking through your town, especially if you lived in a bigger, prominent city like home. Then thirdly, he says, there are not many nobles. This would speak, I think, especially something that's a foreign concept to us in America today. Uh, but I think you understand it from your, your studies. This speaks of birth. Born into a wealthy ruling class. Heritage. Again, unlike modern socioeconomics, especially in our country, that you hear stories of A-list celebrities, actors and actresses who talk about living in their cars before they got their big break, or the billionaire tycoons who were born to single moms that worked four jobs as maids. That's not the case here. Back then, in that time and in that empire, outside of the very rare and exceptional event, you stayed in the social class you were born in. And all these social and cultural markers of status are of human wisdom. Yes, the Roman Empire and our country today are driven by these social and cultural markers. But they are all man-made. They are all human wisdom. Like the works-based religions devised in the minds of men, social status was based on human achievement and to a large degree self-promotion. The Christian status, however, is based on grace. Remember what grace means. Something that is given to you that you have not earned and do not deserve. The Christian status is based on grace and God's divine choice. Not your choice. If we had our choice before we were saved, we would never be saved. And again, those two words, not many, shows that Paul is aware that some in the Corinthian church were well off by human standards. He mentioned some of them. The people who were hosting the churches had houses big enough. They were wealthy enough to do things like this. But for the most part, the believers who made up the church were not the type that received honor by those who mattered in Greco-Roman society. So what do we do with this? Back to the beginning of the verse. We would do well today to consider our calling. This is a surefire way to keep you humble and to keep you worshiping. 
even if you aren't among those that would be described here. Maybe before you were saying that even today you were a titan of industry. You are a politician. You are someone who moves society. In comparison to your calling by God, your calling is so great that any human achievement in comparison would not be wise, would not be mighty, would not be noble in comparison to the cross and salvation. We need to keep things in perspective. God's calling and what that means, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, fellowship with the Creator, all of it pales in comparison to anything this world can offer even at the height of human success and at the zenith of human achievement. So what are you considering? What are you dwelling on? What are you thinking about? What gets you to jump out of bed in the morning? What causes you to sweat a little in the morning? Is it your job? Is it your status? Is it your finances? Is it your boss's opinion? Or is it your calling? Your desire to repent and excel still more for the glory of God. You get excited because vacation has started. You get nervous because you're not sure if you can get the project done. Or you get nervous because you realize there's so much sin that you want to repent of. You get excited because one day you will be in glory. You get excited because you get to, not you have to, that's true, but you get to glorify God today by putting off one more sin. Saying one more kind word to your husband. Making one more act of service to your spouse. Whatever it may be. If we were just half as aware of what God has given us as we are of what we want the world to give us, we would be twice as content, joyful, productive, and passionate. I'm going to say that again. If we were just half as aware of what God has given us as we are of what we want the world to give us, we would be twice as content, joyful, productive, and powerful. You are the people of the world. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But it matters not. Because what matters in that sentence is the word God. Profession, not title, not degree, not 401k, call. Secondly, the second manifestation of God's wisdom in the calling is the paradox of the call. The paradox of the call. Look at verses 27 and 28. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. Paul isn't just trying to insult the Corinthian believers. He has a point. 
God chose a particular kind of person in order to contrast the kind of person the world would choose and has chosen. Even in Jesus Christ, the contrast is found between the kind of person, our savior, leader, the world would choose versus what God has chosen. His choosing emphasizes the incredible wisdom that he has. First, he has chosen the foolish things of the world. Again, these are those who don't belong to the intelligentsia of society. And that word chosen is in a tense in the Greek that says, that means choosing for himself. He chose us for himself. That's part of the calling. That should blow you away, by the way. This was no accident. He handpicked. He selected the Corinthians. He selected you. In other words, the Corinthians didn't just stumble upon Paul's teaching. They didn't just walk into Paul preaching the gospel to someone else. God sent Paul to them because God chose them. The reason the foolish things were chosen, Paul goes on to say, was to shame the wise. Literally, to humiliate them. To disgrace them. And we see the same principle of God's choosing of the weak things of the world. The weak things he refers to speaks of those without influence. God chooses those without any influence in society in order to shame the things that do have influence, which he calls the strong. The strong are the policymakers, the influencers. Again, he wants to humiliate them, disgrace them, show them that their way is not just wrong, it is futile, it is embarrassing, it is condemned. When we move into verse 28, he says more of the same thing. The base, or the low, or lowly, as the ESV and NIV translate it. This again speaks of heritage. These are those, the base, are those of not of noble birth. There's nothing in their birth, in their last name, their origin, their heritage, that makes them distinct in any way. They're not a Rockefeller. The commonest of the common. Then there's the despised. Just gets worse from here. The despised are those who are considered by society as nothing. People who are treated as of no account, looked upon, looked upon with contempt. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Treated as of no account, looked upon with contempt. Who does that sound like? Jesus Christ. Then he goes on and says the things that are not. Believe it or not, this is worse than being considered as nothing. This means that they are treated as if they don't even exist. What Paul uses here is the most contemptible, the most insulting expression in the Greek language. you got to understand that this is so insulting because being was everything to the ancient Greeks, as you know if you studied it's not that society actually thought that these people didn't exist. They see them. They know they exist. They just couldn't care less. And as far as they're concerned, they're just scenery, if not a nuisance. Their presence and participation is unnecessary. And if anything, it's just a bother. Get rid of them. Get them away from us. 
we kind of do this today, right? Not, not in a malicious way, but there are people that we just don't notice. They don't exist as far as we're concerned. The extras in the back of our favorite scene in our favorite movie, the dishwasher at the fancy restaurant you just ate at for Valentine's Day, the guy who positions the mic before the president comes to the podium to speak. They are real people. They are human beings. But you don't notice them. You ignore them. You don't recognize their existence, especially in contrast to the main actor, the famous chef in the kitchen, or the president giving a speech. Could you imagine if the guy with the live camera started going, the guy was still there positioning the camera? Tom Cruise is doing his own stunt and extra gets in the way and bumps him out of the way. You don't see that because it's cut. You get yelled at. You get fired. They're as good as nothing. Worse than nothing. We don't want to know they exist. We don't know they exist. You, you ever watched the entirety of the credits roll? Have you, you ever seen how many hundreds of people are involved in a movie? You don't care, you walk away. Back where I lived in Europe before, they would actually turn off the screen and turn on the lights when the first credits started to roll because everyone walked out. I actually had to tell the manager, there's some movies that they had an extra scene at the end of <laughs> Anyways, you get it, right? And again, as Christians, even as Americans, we don't we don't treat people with contempt. But back then, they did. Maybe it's some of your uh, History Channel shows or, or whatever may, may be the, depicting the the Roman Empire. You you've seen this, right? Maybe even in in the the Jesus films, the different films portraying the Gospels or the Crucifixion. You you've seen how they depicted the lepers and the beggars. Even the Jews, God's people, how they treated them. They wish they did not exist. They wish they were not there. They were worse than nothing. And these are the people that God has called. All these define God's chosen people. Why? To nullify the things that are. Nullify. The Greek word means put out of action, reduce to nothing, set aside. To paraphrase, he chooses the nothings to nullify the somethings. If you want to put this in a theological context, in the overarching plan of God, God has already set into motion the future day in which the present age is on its way out. Being done away with so as to usher in eternity and the new heavens and the new earth. It is only in his patience that it is all not destroyed right now. And in calling such lowly people to himself to partake of the salvation he offers through the death of his son, we learn a few things about this calling that I want to make mention of now. Four things. The first is, as we have seen all along, God's wisdom goes against the grain of conventional wisdom goes against the grain of conventional wisdom. And we've talked about this a lot. It runs counter to the values and standards of men. Again, riches, success, 
even if they're not influential, at, at least entertain me. Entertain me somehow. Make what's in it for me, right? That that's the world's view of things. What's in it for me in standing here to watch you on the street corner, or to give you a bop, or to turn on your show, or to even be your friend? We need to understand that this means that what is important to God, what is significant to God is different than what is important and significant to the world. You have got to understand this. This has got to be foundational in your biblical worldview. This simple, basic premise that we have been hammering over and over again over the last three Sundays should flip your thinking upside down. God will use your talents for the church. God will use your talents to promote you in your secular workplace. He will give you finances. He will give you family. He will give you earthly happiness. He will give you things that will be categorized as success in the world's eyes. I'm not saying throw that away. I'm saying how you value those things how you use those things, how you prioritize those things has to be how God prioritizes it. In other words, if it is a priority, you're a fool. If you judge people who come to our church by where they live and what they drive, you are a fool. If you would rather follow the successful, influential, non-Christian at your work than the smelly, poor, unkempt, but godly individual who is a Christian at your church, you are a fool. I don't mean to be mean. I'm just saying we need to think the way God thinks. Now, it's not that they're unbelievers. But can I tell you right now, not even this side of the pulpit, on your side of the pulpit, you are sitting next to people that will have, if you let them, an infinitely greater impact on your life and your walk with God than John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, or John Piper put together. What are you looking at? Fame, fortune, publishing rights? God's wisdom goes against the grain of the world wisdom. Number two, this is wonderful. God is not bound by the world. He's not accountable to them but has in fact shamed them on purpose. As his children, we must be the same, not the shame. We cannot live as if we are beholden to the world. Yes, submit to the authorities in your life that God has called us to, but because God has called us to. It's very different. So biblical submission is very different than seeking the approval of on the contrary, we must submit because we seek the approval of God. 
And this means we do so in God's way and for God's glory. Outside of the authorities in our lives that God has called us to submit to, we must be aware of the self-imposed fear of man. Be very careful. Because once you fear man, once you live in a way, especially if it's keeping quiet about your faith, because of the fear of man, you are doing something that God says you don't need to do, and in fact are free from in the cross, which is voluntarily, willingly, putting yourself in accountability to man and man's wisdom. I, I don't know if this makes things worse. Hopefully it makes things better. But your concern that an unbeliever will not like what you're about to say is warranted because God himself has says, said it's foolishness. And again, it's, it's hard to see in our day, maybe on the news a little. But back then, you've got to understand how hard this hit the Corinthians and the early church. They considered it the world foolishness to the point that they would kill people simply for following that foolishness. So, if you're afraid they're going to reject it, well, of course they're going to reject it. It's foolishness to them. But that's the point. We want to give them the foolish message so that in God's saving grace, it will, like for us, become wisdom. Thirdly, God doesn't choose the lowly to exalt them socially. Exalt them in His timing, in His day, in His kingdom, yes. But He doesn't choose the lowly so that they can be mighty and noble and powerful in society. He's not interested in that. Does he do that to some? Yes, but that's not what salvation is. He doesn't need worldly influences. He doesn't need riches. He chose us and gave us something much better. better. And ultimately, he chose us to subvert, invert, and convert human values. To flip the world upside down. To the point that foolishness becomes wisdom and wisdom becomes wisdom. And fourthly, what he said here and what we've covered this morning about the call and who he is called, this is not demeaning. It is dignified. Paul's point is not to embarrass or criticize the Corinthian believers. If that was the case, he'd actually be contradicting himself by implying there is something embarrassing or worthy of criticism by being lowly in the world's eyes. No. Paul's point here is to exalt the marvelous grace and wisdom of God. Not only His grace, but His power. If this is what comprises the church, then its success, its influence, its testimony, its light can only be attributed to us now to His power. You see, the whole point is to dignify us so that He would be exalted, to magnify Himself. And what a privilege it is to be born 
into the class of fools and by our Creator's gracious, sovereign, and merciful love be plucked out of that. And not just that, have put into a commune, but to be put into this world so that we might live out that grace and share the good news of grace to those still stuck in that class. Well, we see two of the four manifestations of God's wisdom in the calling. The people of the calling and the paradox of the calling. Here's the thing, guys. The more you love the world and respect its values, the harder this is going to be to accept. Either because you love the accolades that the world has given you, or because you crave the accolades that the world has given others. Regardless of who you may be here today, regardless of your wealth, your influence, your heritage, or lack thereof, you have to understand the point. God's wisdom in calling you far outweighs the wisdom of the world in what they call Yesterday was my middle son's birthday. As most of you know, he has a lot of health issues. Thursday night, he went yet again. It was the 15th or 16th time in his seven years to the emergency room. He has a feeding tube in his stomach, and every three months, just because it's, it's rubber, plastic, it wears out or can get infected, we change the tube. Every three months. We do it at home. It's very easy, simple. I took the tube out, but the new one, same size, wouldn't go in. Last time, kind of pushed hard. It just hurt so badly. The problem is that the body God created is amazing. If there is nothing in that hole for just a few hours, it would heal itself up and close up just in a few hours. Then we've got a big problem because then he's got to go on the head. So we called, they said, take him to the ER. Went to an ER, didn't really know how to handle kids. We've been told that before, but we thought this was simple, just pop it in. They actually. Uh, just found a smaller tube. It was actually a catheter that they put in there and then sent him home. Told us to go to Stanford ER on Friday. So that night, he had this huge rubber tube hanging off him, which, if you guys know Ethan, he thought was pretty cool. The first thing he did when he came home showed me. But also, he needed x rays because instead of his normal feeding tube that goes about half an inch or an inch inside his belly, he had six inches of this catheter floating around. So first thing in the morning, my wife takes him to the children's hospital emergency room. He was there all day. And as you know, if your doctor been in ER, you're low priority if you're not about to die. ERs are the safe people's lives. So anticipating surgery, we didn't give him any food from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. So by the time he gets there, he's not eating in over 12 hours. And you may be familiar with the term hangry. <laughs> you ever seen a six-year-old who is hangry? 
you ever seen a six-year-old who has developmental delays, who cannot process those feelings, and barely survives through a feeding tube? This was a text in capital angry with exclamation points and some weird emojis. So they said, we're, we, we want to avoid surgery, which we were praying for, and we'll just try to make the hole bigger by uh, one after another putting a bigger tube. So basically, what they did was take bigger and bigger tubes and manually tear that hole open and bigger. And to reasons still unknown to us, they gave him no anesthetics. Not localized, not general. At one point, he was screaming and so hungry and so angry and so much in pain from the tearing of his flesh that my wife and a couple other doctors and nurses had to pin him down as the surgeon just wrenched it. Then they continued going and going and it got to 24 hours and he still had it. Finally, they took the x-rays and got home. This was the day before his birthday. We got home and he was in a good mood. All of it was over, but he was screaming frantically, kicking the wall, even rolling on the floor of the ER room. He was so hungry and so much fun. He very nicely asked if he could have one of his birthday presents. I said, no way, it's not your birthday, of course. I gave him him one of his gifts. And I said, you can even play with it at the dinner. And he took it out. He played with it once and started laughing hysterically. His brothers started laughing. My wife and I just started cracking up. It was so cute. It was so fun. What was it that made him so fun? It wasn't a Nintendo Switch. It wasn't an iPhone. It wasn't even Legos or an RC. It was a cheap, plastic, $2 slide <laughs> Something most other kids his age would probably get mad at if they got for their birthday. Throwing it away. A plastic piece of junk. And yet that night, this piece of junk changed our lives. Your worth is not found in what the world is found. Doesn't even matter if they think you and your faith are a worthless $2 piece of Your worth is found in something that, frankly, they can't value because its value is immeasurable. Or consider your calling, brother, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the 
foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may nullify the things that are. Heavenly Father, we trust and rest in your sovereignty. We have a desire more of a compassion for the unbelieving. Though we have no desire to shame them, we rejoice that in your plan, your wisdom is so great and so powerful in the cross that it does shame them. Through our testimony, through our lives, through our faith, through our gospel message, I pray you would continue to do that, to embarrass them, to show them the futility and the shame of their worldly pursuits, that they might turn to you. May we as believers, partakers of this grace, may we live out loud for your glory. May we live in light of the cross. May we live knowing that we know the wisdom. In Jesus' name. Let's stand.